Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin-Hand. Today's Meet the Writers comes to you from The Times and The Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival, where the following conversation was recorded in front of a live audience. I'm delighted to be joined today by the musician and pulp frontman Jarvis Cocker. As the band's founder and vocalist, Jarvis became a figurehead of 1990s Britpop. During the group's hiatus, he led a successful solo career and, for seven years, presented Jarvis Cocker's Sunday service on BBC Radio 6 Music. This summer saw the publication of his book Good Pop, Bad Pop, a journey through Jarvis's childhood and the early years of pulp, told through the archive of objects in his attic. This is the book, Good Pop, Bad Pop, and it's an inventory. This is what you did. You suddenly decided you had all of this stuff. Why did you go through it? Well, I guess like a lot, a lot of people in this room probably have stuff. Maybe even you've got some stuff. I've got some stuff. Um, and um, I don't know. It, it, the thing is, it wasn't in my own house anymore, technically speaking. Um, I, I'd come, I came down to London in 1988. That was to go to college. And, and I brought a lot of stuff with me. And I kind of lived in lots of random places. And... It would kind of um, drive the people I was living with a bit mad because there was all this stuff. I eventually bought a house and put it all in the loft of this house and then I left the country. (laughs) And it's been in this house and other people have been living there. And I don't know, I I can't see you for a start very well, but I guess everybody's got like a a drawer or, or something where you just keep things and you think, oh yeah, I'll sort that out at some point and um, one day I just decided yeah I was I was going to do it I got in there I mean it's a fantastic premise for a book so what you've done is I mean as you say it's not a life story it's a loft story but you tell the story of your life through the objects that you find yeah I suppose so I, I mean I should can I show you a picture of the loft absolutely okay so there we are so quite yellow I wanted to show you this because the thing is, um, you might think, oh, we, we could, we could, I could take you up to the loft and show you things, but that would be kind of difficult because I don't know if you can get a sense of scale, but that door is only about three feet high. So what we're actually dealing with is some storage space within a loft conversion to get very technical. And um, I decided I was going to go and have a look in this place, so, but... To get in, you know, you have to... You, so that door is like that, so you have to open it a bit like this and then you get in and it's, it's at the edge of the house. So if you imagine where the stage is, that's the, the, the roof really um, slopes down where it reaches the front of the house. So I'm in the... Can you get the idea? I'm in a very <laughs> difficult space. It, it runs probably about this kind of length and... and as I say in the book, it, it's a bit like being in a giant Toblerone packet. <laughs> um, and I, I would just kind of... All the stuff that I'd put in there was... It had originally been in black bags like that, but it kind of spilt out. So I just had to kind of crawl a, over it and just, you know, get a handful of stuff, an armful of stuff, and, and bring it back into the other room and then dump it down and see what I was dealing with. And you may ask the question, why didn't I just put it all in a skip? 
to start off with. Shall I ask that question? And Why that, didn't you put in this skit? Because, because I, I do think that I... Because I'd taken the trouble to bring this stuff down from Sheffield with me when I first came to London, I did know that, or I, I suspected that somewhere in that stuff there was something that was, would tell me something about myself. So yeah, that, that was why I decided to look at everything and I, I decided to, to look at it, take a picture of it, and then decide to keep it or cob it, which is a Sheffield word for throwing it away. Or eBay it. Or eBay, yes, and went on eBay, but not that many. <laughs> but also, I mean, you do this wonderful thing where you sort of break that fourth wall and you talk to your readers and even sort of invite them to, to identify objects or say, oh, I might give this away, perhaps, to you. And this wonderful kind of conversation that you have with your reader throughout the book. Yeah, I don't know where that came from, really. I think that comes from... I do do some radio stuff, you know, and... Um, there's a show that I do on BBC Radio 4 called Wireless Nights, and, and I often use that to try and... I don't know, I, I like the idea of, of making the audience feel like they're there with you, you know, to mm. try and make something come alive in your mind, because I, I don't know, I'm, I, I like that. I like to listen to stuff like that myself, you know. So here we are, we've got these, these very strict rules. It's keep it or... Cop it, yeah. and you bringing all the items down. And the first thing, really, the first thing really is an examination of your creative process, and it all starts with fashion in your mother's old science notebook. Yes, and I can show you that if you'd like. Please. I've got this bag here, and it's very all very carefully arranged in here. <laughs> and um, this was one of the first things that made me realise that maybe this idea to look at stuff rather than to just throw it away was, was a good idea. Because it isn't just a science book. The big thing is this, I don't know if you can see, see that there's like a kind of a design. It's like a design for a badge or something, yes. <laughs> and it says pulp, pulp. So when I saw that, you see, I thought, ah, okay, there could be some kind of thing. So I opened it up and then basically I kind of saw this which it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a fashion guide for a group that didn't exist yet. This, this book I would have written, I guess, when I was around 14, 15 years old, and I'd always wanted to be in a band. I think I knew I wanted to do that from a really early age. And then I thought, well, I have to know what the band's going to look like. So I kind of did this pulp wardrobe which starts off with a duffel coat for some reason, <laughs> which is such an impractical thing for a person in a band to wear. <laughs> it would be very hot, you know. And, um, and then it goes on to crew neck jumper, garish T-shirt, plain shirt, rancid tie. Why rancid? Rancid, I don't know. I, I, that was just like a word that I liked at the time, I suppose. And, um, and all this stuff, pointy boots, cheapo baseball boots, Oxfam jacket, silly socks. Shortish hair and a sequin being used for a silly purpose. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the thing was, I, I didn't know how to play anything yet. I, I tried to play a guitar that we had in the house, but the strings were, like, about that far away from the fretboard, so it was very difficult. And this was a way of kind of uh, trying to... I thought, well, if, 
if I know what the group looks like, then it, it just seemed more real to me, you know. But as you point out in the book, that was pretty much your school uniform. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't want to get, like, expelled or anything like that. <laughs> uh, it was kind of stuff that you could kind of... Some of it you wouldn't be able to go to school, in, but I, I would be able to go to school a bit. But after that, a few pages on, then it gets more serious. I don't know if we'll be able to see on there, but I, I do like a... Um, this is kind of like a, you know, a, a logo for the band there. We were originally called Arabicus Pulp because I think it was we were in an economics lesson at school and Arabicus Pulp was something... The, the, the teacher was showing us the Financial Times and it was some kind of commodity that you could trade in. Something to do with coffee, I believe. Maybe somebody's got some shares in it here, I don't know. Um, but on the other side of there, then you can see up at the top, you see it says, The Pulp Master Plan. <laughs> and then this is where it gets a bit more serious. So I've kind of decided what the group will look like, but then this is where I start to talk about how the group is going to basically take over the whole world of, of mass media entertainment. As indeed it did. Well, it didn't, but... <laughs> but we had a go... I can read you the first bit, if you like. Please. Um, the Pulp Master Plan, Category A, Music. Uh, being first and foremost a musical unit, it is fitting that Pulp's first conquest should be of the music business. The group shall work its way into the public eye by producing fairly conventional yet slightly offbeat pop songs. <laughs> After gaining a well-known and commercially successful status, the band can then begin to subvert and restructure both the music business and music itself. <laughs> so this that did make me laugh a little bit in the loft because, you know, I hadn't written a song yet by this point, so... <laughs> slightly aiming very high shall we say. Well, and indeed, you've got some music chords in there, but when you, when you went downstairs to grab your guitar and play what, what the song was you'd copied down, it was slightly less than credible. Yes, you're, <laughs> thank you for reminding me of that. That's actually on the very first page. These chords here, no, I don't know, this thing down here. So I, I looked at that, and it was all this thing of... And I, I thought, yeah, what could that be? And I went and got a guitar and I started playing it. And, just, da, 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 and suddenly I realised, hmm, Annie's song. <laughs> you fill up my senses. <laughs> so that wasn't a real kind of... To say, I, you know, the main thing that had inspired me to, to actually try and get a band together even though I'd wanted to do it from a very young age, but it was that the punk rock thing happened when I was around 13 years old. And that was a really kind of important message because it was like, you don't have to be able to play too much, you know, you just maybe two or three chords, you can be okay. And that was, because up to that point, I'd, on this horrible guitar that had the strings miles away, I'd tried to play a Beatles song and it was just like, no, you can't do it. And I'd, I don't know whether I would have given up, but... The punk thing just happened at exactly the right time for me. And, and I just thought, OK, yeah, I, I can get some people around the house. 
and we can just make a noise and maybe it'll turn into a song. And that's really what we try to do. And part of the fashion thing, I think, comes from possibly an early trauma where your uncle gave you, <laughs> gave you lederhosen. I wish we'd gone through this interview before. <laughs> Which indeed led you to be called Two Dicks Jarvis. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, it, that, that is true, yes. But that, the, reason, the reason for that was that they were kind of these grey... Oh, well, I haven't got them with me. But I'm not going to put them on for you, but they were kind of like grey suede with some green leather around the edging. And then it had like a bib, you know, with a stag on here or something. So it looked like a kind of goat herd or whatever. My mum thought that would be great to go to school then. So I went to school and, you know, kind of walked into the yard a bit like that and then people saw it and then they started having a laugh. And then, um, as, as you say, the, 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 it got to a real pitch of uh, activity because somebody realised that there were two zips at the front <laughs> of, the, of these things. So, which, to be honest, is quite good for ease of whatever if you need to go you know wherever during the day but um, anyway <laughs> somebody said oh yeah up to then the main kind of insult had been with wearing glasses was four eyes and then it became two dicks <laughs> and that was it but I think I mean that was thank so you for bringing it up <laughs> About uh, the, the whole uniform, the kind of school, quite normal look that you were designing was about fading into the background because of, of incidences like that, to the point where you lied about your name, even. I did, actually, yeah. The name Jarvis just was like, people go, what the hell is that? And so um, I was on a... You're bringing up all the traumatic things here. But um, I, I went on like a kind of... a. a Sheffield-wide uh, camping thing of, of all the kind of Cub Scout troops in Sheffield. And I decided that I didn't want to have to say that my name was Jarvis. So when uh, they asked everybody the name, I said, John. And then all my friends kind of looked at me like... And I just had to pretend to be John for the rest of the week. <laughs> that was another reason, I suppose, why I did latch on to the punk rock thing when it came because people gave themselves really ridiculous names on purpose there and I just thought I'm okay I've already got a ridiculous name <laughs> I'm, I'm one step ahead of you Shall we see what else is in your bin bag? Yeah, I know well, there's a couple of cassettes There are some cassettes, yes I, Let me see <laughs> just, The cassettes have just gone a little bit well, You can pull out anything you like, really I, I'll, um, I'll tell you what I'll show you now I'll show you this shirt, because this shirt, I'll hold it here, because I want you to see the label, really. Can you see that label? I'm really not doing it right, am I? Yes, there we are, look, there we are. Look at that gold star, which may have had something to do with me, why I bought it. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is the first second-hand clothing item I ever bought. And that was, again, Inspired by the punk rock explosion, I suppose, I decided that I had to kind of get my own look together. Um, and luckily, there was a church just 
I don't know, 200 yards up, up the road from our house, and they used to have quite regular jumble sales. And so I would go, to, I, I went to a jumble sale, I fought amongst the women there who were kind of like, now they're very physical, a jumble sale, actually. <laughs> no, they are. I mean, they don't have them so much nowadays, but um, quite, quite a physical thing. So that was one thing for me as a kind of, not the, you know, most built guy at the time, trying to actually get to the front of the queue so I could get some things. Anyway, so I, I grabbed this shirt and bought it, and that's, yeah, that's like, I mean, I'm amazed that I still had it, you know, that it was still up in the loft. It hadn't been eaten by moths. I think it's, it isn't uh, completely synthetic. It's polyester and cotton, in case you want. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But, in fact, you became quite obsessed by jumble sales. Yeah, I did. I got a bit of a habit of, of them, actually, and that's, that's kind of... I suppose that's why I bring this bag on, really, because... Uh, when I first went into Loft, there were lots of black bags where everything had kind of spilt out of them, but that would be what I would bring back things from a jumble sale in. And uh, you have to think that after I left uh, school, then, then I was on the dole for quite a long time. I just spent a lot of time with not any money, really. And jumble sales were a way of, of getting things, you know. It was... But I, I found... I think it was the start of a, of a kind of... Um, of a sensibility, yeah, because I, I started to learn about the world through what it, through it was throwing away. And, um, you know, when I bought this shirt, I kind of thought, well, who in this area wore that before me? Because it's, I mean, it's not super crazy, but it's a bit crazy. And I just thought, yeah, some guy who lives around here has been walking around with that on. <laughs> And uh, so then I started thinking, you know, what was his name? Why, why did he wear that? You know, just every single thing had been owned by someone else. So that intrigued me. Does it still fit? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I'm not going to try and put it on now. What else have you got for us? I've got, um, well, this, this is a very precious thing here. Um, this is the clock that I used as my alarm clock. Uh, this was after I, so I left home, my mum, it's interesting actually, I went to see her the other day and she said, I like your book, but there's just one bit that's not right, I never told you to leave home. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> I remember it a bit differently, but, <laughs> I, I left home around the age of 18 and I ended up living in a kind of, uh, a kind of strange place. It was like a room above... Uh, it was an old factory that had been, like, changed into kind of various mixed-use units. There were bands rehearsing there. There were people making T-shirts there and stuff. And a friend of mine was the caretaker of this building and he had a flat there, so I went to live there. And this was the way that I woke myself up every morning uh, with this clock that I'd found down at the market. Now, it looks OK, but... The, the interesting thing, I suppose, is this. That's a ballerina within a kind of enclosed plastic space. Like in a, in a kind of... And um, would you like me to demonstrate? I would happens? love you yeah, to so, so, because it did lead to a kind of trauma for me, in a way. <laughs> so I'll just wind it up and then... So, what? 
you set that for when you want to wake up. And then you get this ballerina doing this very, I think, quite a kind of... Uh, I mean, look, is she going to turn? Is she going to <laughs> Yes, and then she turns. And she's kind of dancing in a mirrored chamber. You can see she's looking at herself. And, and this tune, I don't know if you can really hear the tune. Can you hear it a bit? If I, if I put my microphone a bit near to it, can you hear it a bit now? It's quite haunting. <laughs> and then the thing is that as it goes on, it gets slower and slower. And it's like you're watching someone die inside some kind of enclosed chamber. And I think, I know, I used to, oh, and this is gone. So that was a horrific way to wake up every morning. And, um, and pretty much, as you say, a kind of almost a representation of Thatcher's Britain living through on the dole. You're, you're very, very poor. You're living on 30 quid a week. Mm. And you wanted to sleep your life away. Well, that's... Yeah, I, I, sleep was cheap, yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, you might have a nice dream. But whereas if you were awake, you weren't going to have a, a nice reality. So, so there was a bit of that, yeah. And then thinking that when I did wake up, I'd be confronted with that. <laughs> so uh, in the book, I say that I threw that away, but my manager said, you can't throw that away. So I had to give it to her. She's, Jeanette Lee has allowed me to bring this on tour to show you. What else? What else? Um, let's have a look what else we've got in here. I'm sure that cassette must be in here. So you know, we did have a lovely list of everything in absolute order oh, that yeah. we were going to talk about. Right, I'm going to show you what's in here then. So, because this actually, this, so this is an example of something that really foxed me at first. So, I'm just going to put that there. We're not looking at that matchbox, no. Well, we are. But we're, I'm more interested in what's inside it. So, I'm just going to kind of gradually reveal it to you. So, here it comes. <laughs> Can you see what it is? So, Cousin's Imperial Leather. <laughs> Luxury in soap form. <laughs> and I've put it in this matchbox as a kind of uh, flight case for it to travel around on this literary tour. But I just found the piece of soap. So I looked at that and thought, hmm, why? You know, why is that here? <laughs> There's no plumbing up here. No one can have had a bath up here. I have never washed myself up here. And then as I looked at it, I, I realised, because, you know, you can see it's mainly the label of the soap, and that so they made a ding-ding, aha, I remember now, because Cousins changed the design of that label sometime, I think, in the early 90s, and this was a terrible thing for me. I thought... I, I didn't like the new label. It had a kind of, I don't know. It might, they might still be the same one now. I just didn't like it. So I used to go to all the shops in our area and, and look at the back of the, you know, the back of the um, shelf to see if there were old bars of soap. And that worked for a while. 
And then eventually, you know, the new design was everywhere. And this was the last bar of Sopad with the original design. And when it came to this stage where it was more label than soap, I just couldn't bring, chuck it away. So I, I put it... <laughs> I put it in the loft, you know, for just for this moment to be able to share it with you. But it's a really key exhibit. I mean, it was one of the starting points of the book, wasn't it? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, because, as I say, I'd thought about this loft for a long time and wondered about what was up there, thought that there might be some things that would tell me something about how my life turned out and... <laughs> I suppose the thing that I found interesting about it was that, that there is... I mean, I, I'm under no illusions that this is just a piece of... It's rubbish, really. I mean, it really is absolute rubbish. But it's, it's something to me, and it reminds me of a, a stage in my life. And also, I think, well, why did I want to keep hold of that? And the only thing that I can really think that is the reason is that I had some kind of adversity to change mm. because there are other things can I show you them <laughs> see now that's what Marmite should look like <laughs> again I don't know when it was sometime a bit uh, maybe in the kind of 80s the lid became plastic yellow plastic I didn't like that so I kept the metal lid and every time I bought a new jar of Marmite I would <laughs> unscrew the plastic one, you go in the bin, and I would put the metal lid back on for quite a long time. And then I went away, I went on a holiday for a while, and when I came back, somebody had used up the Marmite, chucked it away, and there was one with a plastic lid on, and it was like... <laughs> um, so you might say, well, what's that one? That, that was recently, I saw that in a, in a kind of junk shop, and so I bought it, and I just thought... Jarvis, you should be over this now. <laughs> but obviously I'm not. Do you still have an aversion to change? Yeah, but I think I've become... Um, I try and say in the book that I, I don't embrace change, but I will awkwardly shake hands with it. <laughs> what are you going to pull out for us next? Well, well, another thing, yeah, this, this is something that I think had quite a, an effect on my development was this comic here Countdown the first issue this is actually uh, and um, the thing about this, this comic it, it's kind of presented in a quite weird way it's, it came out in 1971, February 71 so I would have been like 7 years old and my father's parents knew that I was into space and stuff but it's got a kind of a bit of a you know, it looks a bit more like a newspaper than a comic, in a way. And there's one particular bit towards the end that I think really... I don't know if this is the actual thing, because before I wanted to be a pop performer, I did want to be a, an astronaut. And this really kind of lays it all on the line. It says, situations vacant. Wanted, experienced astronaut, interesting assignments, must be willing to travel and out of this world opportunity. <laughs> so I just thought, yes, please. Um, there was this kind of made-up stuff about space. There, there was Doctor Who, there was Star Trek on the TV, stuff like that. But then, you know, it was only two years since they had actually landed on the moon and there still were 
maybe at this stage they were just kind of dying out a little bit but so in my young mind I just thought okay that's it there's no reason on earth for me to you know learn to ride a bike for instance I didn't learn to ride a bike until I moved to London when I was like 25 26 or something because I just thought bikes in space I don't think so <laughs> so I, I kind of had this idea that I was going to escape you know into uh, the outer reaches of the universe. I mean, you write about it and you say it didn't just enlarge your perception of the world, it introduced you to the whole cosmos. Well, that's talking about, yeah, uh, um, the film 2001, which that's one of the comic strips in here kind of uses the spaceships that they used in that, and that was... 2001 came out in, like, the late 60s, and after they had landed on the moon, they they kind of re-released it, saying, look, this is where we're going. And again, I just saw the poster and I thought, I said to Mum, can we go and see that for my birthday? I would be about six or seven or something. And she said, oh, it's too, it's too grown up for you. I said, oh, please, can you? And I just kept going on and on about it. And so eventually she, she gave in and we went to see it. And of course it was too grown up for me because, I mean, I still don't understand it now. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you, there's all this stuff going on and, and, and nobody talks for very much and, and then you get to this kind of Stargate sequence of 10 minutes, just all this kind of crazy light show thing, and, and then he's looking at himself in bed, and then he's a child, and, you know, it's... So people say, oh, it blew my mind or whatever, but I think it did, in a way, and um, I, I, I'm kind of glad that I saw it at that age, because it, I think, um, I mean, that's another thing that I kind of talk about in the book a bit, of all this stuff that happens when you're very young you kind of just take it in and don't question it. You just think, that's it. Like me believing that I'm going to be living in space, you know, when I'm in my early 20s or whatever, I just believed it. And it's only later on that you suddenly think, actually, I'm waiting for a bus and it's raining. <laughs> um, I'm not in space, you know. And, um, and a lot of my work is to do with that, kind of dealing with this stuff that I really believed at one point and... Mm. And then you kind of think, my life isn't actually like I imagined it would be. Good Pop, Bad Pop, not a life story, but a loft story by Jarvis Cocker is out now with Vintage Publishing. This session was recorded at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.